Need to study on the go? Stay engaged and on track with the Osmosis mobile app. Access thousands of concise, visually engaging videos, questions, high-yield notes, decision-making trees, and more, anytime, anywhere, online or offline. Download it today on the App Store or Play Store. Visit osms.it slash rtl mobile to learn more. Hi, I'm Shibu Bani, welcoming you to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, an ongoing exploration about how to improve health and healthcare. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Bennett Nemzer, who is the Chief Program Officer at the Stephen and Alexandra Cohen Foundation. In that role, he manages the foundation's various health portfolios, including the Cohen Psychedelic Research and Health Initiative and the Cohen Lyme and Tick-Borne Disease Initiative. Dr. Nemzer has a PhD in public health with extensive experience in global health systems in developing countries and related research. Prior to joining the foundation, Ben was a senior monitoring and evaluation consultant for UNICEF and the World Health Organization and worked for Columbia University as an epidemiologist and data systems manager. He also holds a master's degree in business administration. So Ben, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So the first time we spoke, I was pretty impressed with your background in global health. We also shared some time living in Africa. For our audience's sake, would you mind giving them some career highlights, including what got you interested in public health, you got your MBA as well, and then how you got into epidemiology? Yeah, sure. So um, after school, after I got my MBA, I started my my career in uh, Rhode Island state government. It was after the dot-com bubble burst, and I was uh, up in Rhode Island. And you know, I I just had sort of been more aligned and more interested in public service, nonprofit space. And so I uh, ended up getting a, a job as a legislative budget analyst uh, for the House of Representatives there in, in Rhode Island. This is definitely not something I foresaw myself doing. So it was definitely a learning experience. And I got lucky stroke of luck. They gave me one of the agencies that I had to analyze and provide an evaluation and recommendations to the to the legislature was the Department of Health. And so I dug into all their programs and how they were spending their money. That's kind of like my first foray into public health. And a few years later, I ended up um, at a at a position with the Rhode Island Treasury, um, which was a great position. But I was, you know, sort of in a, a windowless office, crunching numbers in Excel. Which, again, I love crunching numbers in Excel. I'm a very big fan of of, of Excel spreadsheets. Um, but I kind of wanted something different for myself, and so I had that mid twenties like uh, inflection point. Like, what do I do now? And so. I decided to go back to school uh, for public health, and I was my, my most interested in uh, in global public health. Uh, so I applied to uh, to Columbia and got in, and and sort of went on my way to Columbia. Uh, that turned into my internship between my first and second year was in Rwanda uh, with the Earth Institute. Uh, so I was working on integrated rural development projects there, and they ended up hiring me after I, I graduated. And so you know started working for Columbia. It was a large project uh, across about ten African countries um, doing you know, work in healthcare, education, infrastructure, agriculture. And I was working on the M&E team monitoring the evaluation team. So I was doing all the sort of the survey work and outcome monitoring, designing <laughs> designing um, text-based messaging systems for CHWs to track patients in like rural communities with no internet access. Like it was, uh, it was all very fascinating work. And obviously, uh, you know, we're trying to have um, a, a big impact uh, in those in those rural communities to help them lift these communities and families out of poverty. Yeah, what an incredible transition from Rhode Island uh, and <laughs> Department of Treasury to, to then living in Africa for, for some time. Um, when we connected, I think I had just come back from our trip 
to Kilimanjaro, raising awareness for rare diseases with the Year of the Zebra campaign, and then visiting our partners in Butaro, Rwanda, at Partners in Health and the University of Global Health Equity, which is a podcast we did as well. Um, I'm curious, how long were you in Africa for? And then what were some of like, the highlights, maybe both professionally and personally that you're most proud of? That's a good question. I mean, I guess my career spanned about 10 years uh, working in, in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, most of it was New York based. And so I would be going for weeks, months at a, at a time. I was never like based in Africa for more than like two or three months. And so after I had basically worked with, with Columbia, I kind of moved over to uh, the UN as a global health practitioner. One of the dream jobs is, is working with, uh, with UNICEF. So I started at the UN Special Envoy and then uh, UNICEF and the WHO, mostly working on uh, a project for maternal newborn child health commodities. Um, so these are, you know, low-cost commodities, you know, antibiotics, birth control, uh, et cetera, and getting those to, to communities um, across sub-Saharan Africa. Um, oftentimes, again, they're incredibly inexpensive. You know, we're talking pennies, um, maybe a dollar, but you have to, it has to be at the right place at the right time when a woman is giving birth or when the neonate uh, needs it. Otherwise it's, it's going to be uh, ineffective, right? So uh, trying to figure out how we can uh, do those and partner with these countries uh, to do it most effectively. Uh, and then on to sort of some maternal newborn health uh, quality of care uh, initiatives at, at WHO. It's hard to pick uh, particular <laughs> highlights uh, yeah, out of 10 years. There's so many good memories uh, associated with that. Yeah, no, I can imagine. That's uh, that's definitely close to our heart at Osmosis because as we talked about, I was born in Namibia and we've given a lot of free access to Osmosis as a learning platform mm-hmm. across Sub-Saharan Africa as well as other regions in, in need. So really, I think we bought it a bit over that experience that you had there as well. Maybe if you pick just one personal highlight, like was it a Serengeti tour or, you know, for me, obviously the Kilimanjaro trip was a big highlight. Um, but yeah, we like to humanize our guests and the work they do too, because you're you still have other things you do beyond work. So anything that really stands out as a favorite personal memory in Africa? A fun one was I, when I was in, in Rwanda, um, I had uh, brought my then girlfriend over, now wife. And it just so happens that a colleague's cousin was getting married to someone from Canada and they couldn't bring over any family members. Uh, and so they asked me if I would be his best man. And so with my wife there uh, and myself, we were basically in this traditional Rwandan wedding, um, you know, having basically just just met them the uh, day before. So it was quite funny and, and a good sort of like uh, cultural exchange moment. That's amazing. I wonder if you had to give the, the toast in Swahili or something. <laughs> uh, no, but I did do a little dancing. My wife uh, still ribs me for it. I got a lot of chuckles uh, associated with that. It was, it was a good time. So we'll we'll drop the YouTube video of Ben dancing at the Sarandon wedding in, uh, in our in our show links. All right, we'll get that in a bit. Uh, so moving from the work you were doing for the UN and WHO in Africa to the Stephen and Alexander Cohen Foundation, maybe you can tell us about that jump, that career transition, and then kind of what you started doing at the Cohen Foundation and how it's evolved. My initial work uh, at the Cohen Foundation was I was hired to manage the Lyme and tick-borne disease portfolio. So they were looking with someone uh, with a, a background in healthcare, but also had a you know, personal connection uh, to Lyme and tick-borne disease, which I uh, am a, a caregiver for a, a family member. And I think it was a really good fit because a lot of the stuff that I was doing in Africa was around systems building. Um, and oftentimes that's what's needed in some of these areas like uh, Lyme and tick-borne disease. And now I've sort of expanded out to our entire health portfolio, including uh, psychedelics. 
you know, is we're not just looking at one thing, right? You know, you're looking at the entire system, like um, what are the you know, like the inputs that are that are going into the system, the financial resources, the human resources, the skills, the quality of other inputs, whether it's commodities or uh, treatments, and how are those actually being delivered to people? So it's you know, it's around access, uh, demand generation, safety. So really taking a lot of the lessons that I learned during my, my time, particularly with the UN over to the Cohen Foundation has been really beneficial. When I first, again, was introduced to you, I was pretty impressed with the kind of the scope of activities, as well as obviously the funding that the Cohen Foundation has given out to so many groups. Many of the guests we've had on the podcast before I even met you were people whose work, their research or their clinical care has been made possible through you and the Cohen Foundation. So examples include Fred Barrett, who runs the Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research, um, Michael Silver, who we had on the podcast at Berkeley, whose team released the first edX MOOC, uh, massive open online course on psychedelics. Uh, and then Al Garcia Romeo at Hopkins as well, who I think is doing some work on psychedelics and, and Lyme and, or tick-borne illnesses. So among many others. So maybe let's tackle psychedelics first, because we've been doing a lot around psychedelic assisted therapy coverage at Osmosis and Elsevier in the podcast. Uh, most recently, we had the director of the NIMH, Dr. Joshua Gordon, on the podcast as well, who has been cautiously optimistic about psychedelic work. So maybe you can tell us a bit about the work, some of the highlights you and the Cohen Foundation have had in the space. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, just give a little background on on the Cohen Foundation before we jump into the psychedelics, you know, where organization is is led by President Alexandra Cohen uh, since its inception about uh, 20 years ago. Alex focuses on U.S.-based nonprofits. They're looking to help people, but also solve complex problems. So the sort of psychedelics falls into the complex problems that we're looking at. And like you said, you mentioned size. We um, actually, as of last December, uh, we just went over the one billion dollar mark. Um, so we provided over a billion dollars for charitable support to underserved communities and uh, children's health and education, the arts, Lyme and tick-borne disease, psychedelics, veterans, which I'll talk a little bit about later, and then sustainability. So I started in, uh, what is that, end of 2017. And then in 2018, we got uh, more interested in in the, in the psychedelics field. Um, it, it was sort of funny, um, as as with most of our giving, it's in, inspired by Alex's personal experience. Um, but she came to it via regular non psychedelic mushrooms. So she actually was suffering from Lyme and tick-borne disease for many years. And uh, one of the supplements that helps her is from Paul Stamets' host defense uh, line of mushroom supplements. You know, this is like turkey tail mushrooms for immune support type of thing. And so she became following with Paul Stamets and Louis Schwartzberg, who made the documentary, the film, Fantastic Fun Guy, which we also supported. And someone recommended Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. And Alex read it and and thought like that psychedelics might have like a you know, potentially a tremendous impact. And so she wanted to to learn more. And so we first called Rick Doblin Maps, who I know has been a guest on your show, but he wouldn't return our calls. So we joke about it with him now, uh, but we literally couldn't get past his secretary. Uh, so we moved to the second name on the list, which was Roland Griffiths. Uh, and so we went down to Johns Hopkins and we already had a relationship with them from the, some of the Lyme work. So we got an introduction from our Lyme researchers and we sat knee to knee in Roland's tiny office and asked him uh, what his big dream was. And uh, a year later in 2019, the first psychedelics research center at a major U.S. university was born. Our psychedelics portfolio, you know, we, we find a diverse array of indications from PTSD to depression, addiction, burnout, other mental health conditions, uh, as well as pain disorders and infection-associated chronic illnesses like long Lyme that you had mentioned. 
Veterans are an important emphasis uh, or focus for us. So the MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD uh, has been an important treatment that we've been supporting for many years. We're part of the MAPS capstone and then and then more recently, um, additional uh, support. I mean, from our standpoint, it's just kind of like a shame that these breakthrough therapies have taken so long to receive mainstream acceptance and, and research funding. I mean, it's been 30, 40 years that they've been sitting on the shelf. Um, and that's essentially like cultural at least in my opinion, cultural stigma has restricted um, an objective evaluation uh, of these treatments, which, you know, really has, you know, prolonged patient anguish, unfortunately. So I'm proud to, to work for someone who uh, can transcend that, you know, stigmatic social pressure uh, and is unafraid to take bold steps uh, in the hopes of helping people uh, suffering from these chronic conditions that unfortunately the medical establishment underserves with other treatments. So, I mean, we have a, a vast sort of array of those research areas, but we also, you know, want to focus on the system, kind of what I was mentioning before. So we've funded training of practitioners, uh, including social workers and nurses uh, at Columbia and UPenn. Safety is really important to us. So um, uh, funding clinical guidelines as, as well as uh, practitioner certification and making sure that we're getting, you know, good ethical uh, practitioners and well-trained. And then, of course, we're focused a lot on access because, again, it, it brings back to some of the you know underlying uh, ethos of the uh, of the foundation is is trying to improve uh, services for underserved communities, and so we want to make sure that we you know we've funded you know, reimbursement strategies around getting on uh, insurance, uh, and then um, one of the areas that we've been uh, funding more recently is in group therapy because we think that will help uh, drive down some of the costs and actually maybe more um, honestly maybe more effective for for certain groups. I mean you could you could think about veterans getting together and it might actually be beneficial to be doing it uh, in a group setting as opposed to individually, uh, and then other sort of various field building. And, and public education components, like he was talking about the, the MOOC and, and, and things along those conferences, things along those lines. Yeah, what an incredible, incredible backstory and, and how much of an impact uh, you and, and obviously Alexandra from her personal experience have made in like, what, five years yeah. uh, on the entire space. <laughs> you know, we were both at the MAPS conference, Psychedelic Science in June. I think we saw each other briefly there. And there were 11,000 attendees and a lot of that would not have been certainly much of it would not have been possible without, you know, the legitimacy and credibility that came from the research studies that you guys have funded with maps, obviously Hopkins carried a lot of weight, Roland Griffiths, plus all of his collaborators, their, their work, and then Michael Pollan with his book. So who knows, you know, if the money hadn't come in and Alexander hadn't had that personal experience, how much longer we'd have to wait to get to where we are now. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the role of of philanthropy and these other groups because you know if we were waiting for the government to do this, I mean we basically work. I mean we you know and they, they haven't funded anything for forty years, fifty years, and so the, I think the role of philanthropy um, has to come in and oftentimes be the be the innovator, right? And so I credit Alex with um, you know having that burst of innovation ar around this and, and eagerness um, to lean in to those projects and you know and put her name on it, right? Because again, there was a lot of stigma. A lot of people were maybe giving money but not mentioning who it was from, and so. Uh, we had, I mean, we joke because we had a lot of battles and controversy in the Lyme space, and then we get into the psychedelic space, and it was uh, non-existent essentially. Really, oh, yeah. fascinating. So, so before we go to Lyme, I'm curious. You know, there's been so much movement, so much excitement, a lot of hype, too, admittedly, in the psychedelic space over the last few years. You know, looking over the next five to ten years, what are you most excited about, uh, and the Cohen Foundation, you personally, and or the Cohen Foundation about? Psychedelics. Obviously, you mentioned a couple of things like uh, group therapy, mm -hmm. which clearly, you know, for certain indications, including 
for example, substance use disorders where, yeah. you know, AA is already really effective uh, method to help people stay sober, get sober, or stay sober. Um, you know, that combined with psychedelics would be very interesting. So yeah, what are you excited about for the next couple of years in the psychedelic space? Yeah, I think addiction is going to be an, an area um, where there, there may be a lot of benefits. Uh, you know, we're seeing it, uh, you know, psilocybin for alcohol use disorder, meth disorder. We funded one out in um, Portland at the VA out there. And the other areas, other psychedelic substances like Ibogaine, uh, you're seeing is gaining a lot of traction and may have some some benefits. And so I, I think the idea is we're going to start to figure out how each psychedelic may have different benefits for different groups of people for different indications. And so it's still very nascent, right? You know, we've done a lot in the last three or four or five years. Uh, and of course, you know, many others like Rick Doblin, Berwitchers have been doing this, doing work and, and rolling for uh, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, but there's so much that we that we don't know. So I think we're really excited and also excited. You know, it's it's going to be really complicated to see how these actually get put into sort of mainstream uh, medicine. We see uh, MDMA approval by the FDA likely in, in 2024, you know, fingers crossed that everything uh, goes smoothly. But it's a different dynamic for for practitioners, right? It's a different uh, mode of providing care. Um, you know, typically a, a psychologist or a psychologist will not want someone to be in an altered state, uh, and now we're actually asking them to put them immediately into an altered state. Uh, and so, uh, there's a lot of things that we have to we have to learn from that. And we are concerned as many as others that you, you worry about the elite capture uh, aspect of it. You know, we, you don't just want it for people that have $10,000, $20,000 to be able to do it. We need to get the, the price point down so that we can um, make sure we have access to a lot more people that can that can benefit from this. No, absolutely. And definitely, again, group therapy, telepsychiatry, AI could play a role potentially, as well as maybe novel compounds that uh, are shorter duration, potentially, if you know you don't need one or two facilitators whole day to run a session uh, in person, maybe maybe only a couple hours. But uh, before we go on again to, to tick-borne illnesses and chronic illnesses that are infectious in nature, I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about veterans uh, as well, because you mentioned that some of the, the work there. Um, when Rick Doblin and Michael Mithoffer were on the Raise Line podcast, you know, Rick uh, specifically mentioned that was a, a choice because there's obviously high need for veterans to get care, mm-hmm. but also it's bipartisan. It's brilliant because, you know, even at the psychedelic conference, we had former governor of Texas, Rick Perry, as well as governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, uh, speaking and it's very bipartisan in nature, the support that comes for doing anything we can to help veterans with PTSD and helping them not commit suicide, uh, which is this staggering how many of them do that every year. So yeah, do you want to talk a bit more about veterans specifically? Cause you had alluded to that. Generally, um, um, very much a focus area for the foundation. Uh, we have a, a sister agency, the Cohen's Veteran Network, which provides free mental health services to veterans and their family. Uh, it's about, I think we're at like 24 clinics across the country, mostly near, you know, uh, army bases and uh, military bases. Um, and essentially we're their largest grantor, you know, so it's a, a very close relationship there. And so, and so we see it firsthand, like how, how difficult it is, you know, to help, how, how challenging it is. And, and unfortunately, you know, dealing with, these veteran families, I mean, they're, they're just, you know, have, have this threat over them all the time uh, in, in many, in many respects. I mean, I was just looking, reading an article yesterday that they were saying, you know, veteran suicide is down and it's now uh, 17 veterans a day commit suicide. And, and unfortunately that is, you know, I guess moving in the right direction, but it's still so high. Um, and so I think we need to be, you know, we've um, been trying to provide uh, as much help and support uh, to veterans and those families as, uh, as, as we can. Yeah. And we're hoping that, you know, the MDMA, uh, you know, for PTSD and, and others, I mean, you know, they're, 
not, not different from from any other uh, groups in the country that can that can better. maybe it's not PTSD maybe it's depression maybe it's um, you know other mental health or, or addiction um, issues that uh, they may be dealing with and so we want to try to see you know how this entire group of under-researched compounds uh, may be able to uh, to benefit them. Yeah, no, so many so many promising indications, not just for so-called abnormal psychology, but also, as you know very well, having supported Roland Griffiths and and his protege, Dr. David Yaden, who's also been on the podcast. You know, positive psychology, helping people flourish. Because once we get them to normal, maybe we can help them, help them be more creative, help them uh, be more socially conscious, and maybe we'll have less need for veterans by not needing to have into any wars. And I think that I guess extension from what you're saying is the normal, I don't say everyday happenings of life, but like um, things that happen to us, like the death of a family member, right? You do get, you know, depressed and, and, and mourning and there's grief. And sometimes it's not as, as easy to, to rebound from that. And these, and these may be able to help in, in sort of times of, of whether it's shorter term depression, um, but maybe help with those that that flourishing as well. Yeah, yeah. And one last thing on that point for psychedelics before we go into ICIs <laughs> is um, that's why I really love the dyad study. I think you guys are probably involved with uh, Sunstone. With uh, we had Bill and Brian Richards on the podcast as well as obviously Manish Agarwal at Sunstone, which is doing this fascinating study of not just how these compounds can help people at the end of their life or with cancer diagnoses but they're caregivers and you yourself being a yeah. caregiver, most of us will be caregivers in our lifetime, not just of our parents, but also of children. Um, and, you know, it's really hard. It's really hard. And so I'm crossing my fingers that this study shows some positive results about not just, again, the the person, the patient, but also the caregiver being uh, supported uh, through these compounds or, or the therapy. Yeah, no, I, mean, I think it's such a uh, an important uh, component because oftentimes it's the caregivers that hold a lot of grief uh, associated with the death um, or or an illness of what they could have done better, what they should have done, and and so, and and honestly, like some of the end of life uh, issues that we're talking about, the existential distress. I mean, this is some of the research that Tony Bassas has been doing for decades, but really, you know, thinking about how that end of life experience um, doesn't have to be uh, so em- emotionally painful. Mm. It can be actually be an opportunity to connect with those people that are that are still here, and it actually can be a much more uh, loving experience than as uh, as sort of depressing as uh, oftentimes, unfortunately, it is. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on to uh, to Lyme and tick-borne illnesses, um, because the Cohen Foundation, the largest uh, private funder in the U.S. Yep. of Lyme disease. Uh, so maybe you can give a, a highlight of of how you know you guys got involved with that. Obviously, Alex's personal journey. Um, and then some of the highlights of the work that you've done in this area. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of mentioned it before that, you know, Alex has suffered from Lyme and tick-borne disease for many years. And um, so she wanted to focus on on finding innovative ways to improve diagnostics and treatments and, and sort of the basic research. So since 2025, we, uh, the Cohen Foundation has given uh, just under 100 million, um, probably hit 100 million by the end of the year, to Lyme and tick-borne disease, which is, you know, the largest vector-borne disease in the U.S. So roughly a half a million people, uh, 476,000 people estimated, uh, get infected every year. Uh, and in terms of funding on an annual basis, Alex Cohen, which is one private citizen, uh, often spends more on Lyme disease than the CDC. Uh, which is a bit scary. Uh, and unfortunately, patients uh, cannot access quality care for Lyme and tick-borne disease. So we're still using the same diagnostics and, and treatments uh, from 30 years ago. Diagnostics are 
notoriously inaccurate. Uh, in particular, the standard two-tier tests are roughly 50% accurate in early disease. Um, this is because they're an antibody test, uh, and the body takes roughly four weeks uh, to mount a detectable immune response uh, in many people. But that's obviously, as a clinician, you know, that's the exact time you want to be treating someone appropriately. So when they come in right after a tick bite, so clinicians need to treat based on symptoms, not the not the diagnostic results. And I would encourage uh, everyone listening uh, to watch the documentary, The Quiet Epidemic, uh, to understand more about why uh, Lyme testing is so inaccurate and uh, actually how the medical community has sort of failed to correct this uh, over the last 30 years. Um, Moreover, the standard treatments fail uh, roughly 10 to 20% of the time, even with prompt treatment. And so this leads to long Lyme or what oftentimes researchers called uh, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, where patients have prolonged, often debilitating symptoms for you know years or um, oftentimes even, even decades, unfortunately, with some people. So you, know, you can do a little fast math with half a million people getting Lyme each year, 10 to 20% having treatment failure, um, even with prompt treatment that is an estimated 2 million people in America with long Lyme. And that's not, that's not my number. That's a number quoted by CDC, uh, and that's roughly the same population as Alaska, Vermont, and Wyoming. So imagine <laughs> Alaska, Vermont, and Wyoming all had the exact same disease, everyone there uh, put together. And unfortunately, the sad news is that uh, there's no treatment guidelines for long line. So I have, a, I have a pop quiz for you, Shiv. When was the last time NIH funded a clinical trial on long line? Just based on your framing of it, I would have to assume it's been a decade. It's not last year. <laughs> At least a decade <laughs> <Yeah>. or more. <laughs> yes, 18 years uh, to be precise. Um, I mean, essentially that like NIH has abdicated their responsibility to find any treatment options for these 2 million uh, Americans. And that's not even getting into the issue of, you know, ticks can carry more than one disease. Another pop quiz. How many diseases do ticks carry? Uh dozens i feel right there must be a lot yeah 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 last time i last time i checked which again is important because we're, we're adding new ones every every few years but it was uh it was 18 yeah you know so around 20 like it's a good is a good is a good guesstimate um and so last question for you yeah. how many clinical studies have been conducted on patients with more than one tick-borne disease less than five. Zero. Zero. Okay. <laughs> right. so as a clinician like if you if you see someone coming in with multiple tick-borne diseases right? How do you treat them? Like you have no evidence backed, you know, science to do anything with them. You know, we assume that you treat them, you know, you treat the Lyme first and then you treat the Babesia or with the, the Bartonella or whatever, just, you know, second. And we, we assume that that will work, but we've actually never tested it. Um, and you're asking, you know, how much, you know, we've, we've done studies on ticks and roughly, um, this is in New York and Connecticut, um, 56% of the ticks had Lyme disease and 19% had an additional co-infection. And then other studies, you know, we've looked at this as samples from uh, U.S. and Europe. Um, blood samples, about uh, 65% of those with the one tick-borne disease had a, had a second. Now, again, there, there might be some, obviously, some bias. Those are the ones that are getting in because they have a tick-borne disease. But clinicians are going to be seeing a lot of this. And unfortunately, they don't have the necessarily evidence uh, to be able to treat them well. And so that's that's a, a challenge, right, for those clinicians that they're left in a very difficult position to help deal with this patient. So, um, you know, over the last eight years, you know, in the face of this sort of NIH abdication, Alex Cohen has taken the leadership role uh, in trying to find treatments for people with, with long Lyme. So the Cohen Foundation has had funded like many basic and translational research projects. Um, currently, we have a diagnostic prize competition uh, called LIMEX, which is a public-private partnership with HHS. And so it's about a $10 million uh, prize to getting new uh, Lyme diagnostics through the FDA. 
we're funding clinical service centers uh, in the hopes to help patients like immediately. And uh, these are, you know, major uh, universities. And then we've uh, funded the first uh, clinical trials network uh, for Lyme and tick-borne disease uh, in 2020. And so, you know, we're looking to clinically evaluate various treatment options and disseminate that knowledge about effective clinical care so we can, you know, help the masses, um, hopefully across the country and across the world. Obviously, you know, uh, a few clinical centers are, are great, but they're obviously not going to treat 2 million people. <laughs> so we need to, you know, find what's working and then and then disseminate it. Yeah, incredibly comprehensive. Again, the approach you guys take from bench to bedside to policy. One thing I was going to say is, you know, obviously this year we call it the year of the zebra. We're focusing on rare disease awareness. And at one point, I'm sure many of these tick-borne illnesses were considered or are still considered rare diseases. The definition in the U.S. for a rare disorder is it affects fewer than 200,000 Americans. And obviously Lyme already affects over 10 times that amount. And we're worried about, you know, climate change, maybe contributing to this problem, making it worse. Oh, yeah. Especially with ticks. Yeah. Well, and I think it's great because I, when I saw, I, I really like what you're doing with uh, you're the zebra. And I, because I, I would joke about this too, uh, was that Lyme used to be a zebra and now it's a horse, right? In terms of like the idea that, you know, when you hear hoof plates, you, you should think horse, not zebra. Uh, but unfortunately, clinicians were oftentimes whether um, may have that mindset that it's rare. Uh, but in actuality, when, you know, there's sort of sudden onset, uh, you know, body aches and 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 joint aches and and all these things in the summertime with a with a nine year old, you really got to be thinking Lyme. And with a test that's not accurate, it's you you have to be relying on your own judgment and clinical judgment more um, in, in that context um, because it can be it can be debilitating for that child. And by the way, I should say that you know we 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 have this you know large portfolio with uh, Lyme and long Lyme, but um, uh, recently in the last few years we've uh, expanded it to uh, include other infection associated chronic illnesses, so long COVID, um, chronic fatigue syndrome (MECFS). Uh, MS has a has an infection initiator, and so we just actually announced uh, support for a uh, a clinical center at Mount Sinai uh, with Dr. David Petrino, uh, which will treat patients with all these infection associated chronic illnesses and hopefully provide opportunities for other clinicians to learn. Uh, from their clinical experience uh, as well. Because we're seeing a lot of, you know, compilations, very similar symptom set, um, you know, from long COVID to MEC or these fatiguing uh, syndromes. And so we try to think a lot of times as, as clinicians, like when a patient comes in, it's not, you've got to have that differential diagnosis and really understand, um, try to figure out which one it is. It's not, it's not always easy when there's so much commonality between these infection associated conditions, chronic conditions. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was going to mention that um, the Cohen Center for Recovery from Complex Chronic Illnesses, which, you know, we've had people like Dr. Lisa Sanders on the podcast, who's leading the Yale Long COVID Center. Mm, yep. um, and it's really, you know, obviously, the silver lining of, of the COVID pandemic is that there's so much interest in long COVID, right, which hopefully legitimizes and brings more credibility to some of the issues that people have faced for decades now, where the paternalistic, you know, medical not just research establishment, but medical care establishment that says, oh, the pain is in your mind or, you know, that doesn't really give attention to some of these patients. Um, hopefully that tide is turning again because of more people who are influential getting these conditions, more influential universities like Mount Sinai, which you're funding in, in Yale, uh, doing research on these conditions. Um, so I think the tide is hopefully turning. I don't know if you feel like the progress, it may not be fast enough, but do you feel the same? Like now in the next decade, we should be seeing a lot more improvements. I think so. I mean, I, I think it was slow, right? You know, MECFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, it was, it took a long time to get um, acceptance in the medical and research community. Long Lyme took very long, you know, been controversial uh, process over the last uh, 30 years. And then long COVID came, right? And the issue with chronic fatigue and long Lyme is it was a trickle, 
right? Um, there's a few tens of thousands of people getting it every year. Um, and so I think it was more easily dismissed. When long COVID came, it was millions of people all at once. And so you actually, it's funny because you actually saw the same denialism in the beginning. Um, and it's funny because I was talking to a lot of these, these, these groups and be like, oh yeah, this is going to have, this is going to say this next and they're going to say this and they're going to say this. And, uh, but of course, with so many millions of people having it, um, all at once, it was it was too hard to deny, and so I, I think there was uh, I think a lot of credibility um, and, and people realizing that they need to to focus on it, and uh, you know in that in that context actually I will say NH did fund some work there, so uh, they definitely put uh, resources behind long COVID in the last few years. Very good. Well, so as someone again, you have an interesting hat because you're both someone who's personally caring for someone or family member with with long Lyme. But you have also helped fund dozens, if not hundreds of organizations and individuals doing research and clinical care in the space. What advice would you give to our audience, mostly current or future healthcare professionals? First about like, say, say someone comes to their clinic with maybe a new diagnosis of Lyme or a related uh, infection associated chronic illness, having worked directly with clinicians, what advice would you give them about that interaction? It's a really good question. I mean, I know you guys are a, a learning company, right? And honestly, I'd love to have, you know, videos around, um, you know, how clinicians should treat patients where the diagnosis is unclear or the treatment guidelines are limited or even non-existent, right? It's very complex, right? And to take a line from the journalist, uh, Megan O'Rourke is how do you treat someone who is quote living in the body on the edge of medical knowledge, right? You know, you have to have empathy, you have to have those detailed conversations with the patients um, to talk about possible treatment options and to talk about diagnostic options, right? You know, because you're still trying to figure out what it is. Talk to them about the risk profiles um, and let the patient make that informed decision. Uh, and most of all, you know, be humble. Tell the patient what you don't know. You know, we've gone through dozens of doctors and the ones that we appreciate the most were the ones that said like, hey, you know, have those honest conversations. And then when we get to a point, they be like, hey, I don't, I don't know how to, to treat you. I don't know how, where to go to next. Maybe we should talk to this person. Maybe we should talk to that person. Like, you know, really felt like they, um, you were a partner uh, in the process and less, you know, sort of dogmatic in their approach. Yeah, that is great advice and, and definitely something we're excited to be able to, to work on because a lot of osmosis has been focused initially for the first few years on like just explaining what we know about these conditions that help you pass your exams to become a doctor or a nurse. Uh, but increasingly over the last few years, we've done a lot of the so-called soft skills, which become the hard skills. How do you become an advocate for your patients? How do you leverage new clinical decision-making tools that have AI to maybe get to a diagnosis faster? Because I'm sure that's been one of the most frustrating things for people with long Lyme is just years and years of or chronic fatigue. It's just getting to a diagnosis, which again is a common theme we hear from rare disease patients as well. Really any any condition that either due to lack of awareness or willful dismissiveness among clinicians, mm -hmm. I think could benefit from this type of uh, educational content. Oh, totally. Uh, I mean, that's another area that I think, you know, just sort of injecting that humanity into the clinician-patient relationship, you know, clinicians leaning on their empathy, compassion, uh, meeting the needs of the, of the patient. Um, and, you know, we talk about treatment guidelines and, you know, they should be guidelines, not like a tool to unjustly stunt patient options. Because oftentimes guidelines are built on, on weak evidence, um, underpowered studies, you know, looking at average effect sizes, that's 
typically a far cry from precision medicine. You guys always talk about precision medicine. That's you know, oftentimes that's not. Uh, and in the areas where NIH or philanthropy does not fund, you may not have any science-backed guidance at all. You know, and I know, you know, kind of what you were alluding to, you know, I know patients who are, who are fearful to go to the doctor, right? Because the doctor, you know, negates their experience or symptoms or chalks it up to psychosomatic. Um, but it's often just a patient that the clinician doesn't have answers for yet. And, you know, that's really frustrating and it's, it can be dehumanizing um, when you have this debilitating disease and the people that are trained to help you just dismiss your, your suffering. And it's funny you bring up AI because I think about this a, a lot, you know, with the advancement of, uh, of AI, um, I personally believe there'll be an increased pressure to remove costly elements of the healthcare system. Uh, such as physicians to be replaced by less costly uh, AI, right? So if clinicians do not connect with their patients through their humanity, then replacing clinicians with non-human intelligence seems inevitable. Yeah, that's a theme that's that's come up as well in the podcast, which is we've had people like the head of data science at Stanford, uh, Eric Topol, who's obviously written a mm -hmm. lot about AI and healthcare. And I agree, like with AI replacing maybe just rote memorization and knowledge um, application that comes from why you would go to a so-called expert um, when you have an AI that can read millions of research papers, case reports, ranging from case reports to clinical trials, and mm -hmm. is most up-to-date in all the guidelines, evidence-based guidelines and non-evidence-based guidelines by plugging into data sets that also include maybe Eastern medicine traditions, you know, indigenous medicine traditions that most of us get very little, if not any training, let alone, I mean, when I was at Hopkins Med School the first time around, I got three days of nutrition training. That's it. Uh, for something where, you know, food obviously affects a lot of chronic illnesses. So an AI will replace a lot of the memorization aspects and application, which means that I think hopefully our listeners will double down on the things that make them most human. Exactly. The so-called soft skills, which become the main skills, I think that help people change their behavior in the case of uh, lifestyle associated chronic illnesses or, um, you know, feel supported, feel connected uh, in the case of every other kind of condition or really any sort of medical issue that comes their way. Um, while we're on the topic of advice, I was just going to ask more broadly, you've had a very interesting career. It still continues to evolve. What advice would you give our listeners about approaching their careers in healthcare or public health, et cetera? I think one thing I've, obviously that's worked for me is finding something that you're, you're passionate about. Uh, it feels a lot less like work when you've got that uh, that passion for the role. Obviously, young career uh, folks, I always say, you know, take your internship seriously. Um, I've had a lot of interns at the, the UN and at the foundation, and you'd be surprised at how little uh, some young folks take internships. Uh, when in my experience, they've turned into jobs and they've turned into, uh, you know, very important components of, uh, of my career. Um, yeah, I think it really rests on you know finding that that passion. Um, I, I think is is really valuable. And finding where uh, you know there's there's so much need. You know, finding the areas that that people aren't working, um, the road less traveled. You'll find a lot of a lot of folks there that really uh, need your help. And especially you know many people get into the to the field to uh, you know to really help people and make a difference in people's lives. And and I think there's so many opportunities to do that. I know it can feel. I'm sure from a clinician it can feel very hard because there's so many other pressures on you. Whether it's you know, the, the financial aspects or, you know, insurance requirements and, you know, all the, all these other things um, about, about either running a business or, you know, falling in line, you know, within a, a large behemoth health system. But I think keeping that focus on, on, on helping people um, and being open to identify, you know, help for yourself 
as a caregiver, I know how much people oftentimes need uh, support when they need support. Uh, but I also like to remind other caregivers that they're a person too uh, and need to take care of themselves. It's one thing back to our psychedelics discussion. You know, we, we did fund uh, University of Washington for uh, burnout uh, in frontline health workers because we see it, it can be debilitating. I mean, your jobs at, at the frontline can be uh, so demanding and so emotionally demanding too, especially in certain fields, so close to that emotional mortality experiences of people that are old and young. And uh, so it can be really, uh, I think, challenging. Uh, and so you need to take care of yourself along the way. That's wonderful advice. And that was actually one of the highlight talks I went to at Psychedelic Science was uh, the Washington study. I think that's great advice, self-care and finding the passion. And obviously it's led to a lot of high leverage impact that you and the Cohen Foundation have had. So my last question for you is an open mic. Anything else that you'd like to tell us about you, about the Cohen Foundation, the space that we haven't covered? Um, so anything you want to share? Yeah, sure. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about it around uh, NIH uh, and their funding. It's an area that, that I think about a lot. Obviously, we, we play sort of go hand in hand with some of the NIH uh, you know, funding in there. Oftentimes, philanthropy is is um, filling in gaps that may not get funded from governmental institutions, and um, you know their their role um, in in selecting grants. I think is probably the most important thing that they do, right? As as a pure function, it's about forty billion dollars in NIH a year. Eighty percent of it, you know, is is external. So most of it is giving grants out to other people to do the research, um, and so selecting those grants, I think, is probably the most important function that they have. And unfortunately, in many in many conditions, you know, you, you think, you know, we're talking Lyme, we're talking, you know, oftentimes other areas, whether it's Alzheimer's or chronic fatigue syndrome and other areas that, that don't have real solutions and real uh, innovation um, in the last, you know, uh, several decades. I always kind of wonder if, you know, there's an opportunity to, you know, think about a new approach um, to selecting grants. I mean, they only do peer review process and um, that has its pros and cons, right? So, you know, one of the pros is, is that you're asking other peers to evaluate uh, these, these grants. And so, it tends to be um, risk averse, which is good for you know when you want to take care of you know taxpayer dollars, right? That's an, an important feature. Um, but the problem is, is, is it oftentimes maybe too risk averse, and it doesn't you know benefit innovation. Uh, and so there's very little innovation that happens uh, from that. Uh, and there's obviously inherent biases because essentially um, people that are reviewers have to have been selected to get a grant before is my is my understanding of the process, right? And so it's almost an um, an exercise in a groupthink. Right is that you you can't ask people to be innovative if they all kind of think the relatively the same and so they're sort of selected into this group because they think the same oftentimes or have similar you know thought processes or the ways they approach a certain condition and so not to what I would say they throw away peer review that that's not my my proposal but I would I would argue that maybe we actually have a, a second track and uh, maybe having 20 or 30 percent of of the funds going to uh, more of an innovative uh, way of for lack of a better word you know trying to hit home runs and so really focused on 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 innovation and yeah you're probably going to have more strikeouts uh, but you may actually uh, advance these fields uh, in an effective way and secondly you have an opportunity to then compare the two Right, because you can compare. It's like, well, we actually um, doing better in one or the other. Are they complementing each other? Like, sometimes you need to take a big swing, get yourself to over a certain hurdle, and then the more risk averse option can fill in the blanks. So, uh, it seems to me that you kind of need a, a, a comparator in this process because, you know, with NIH being so scientifically oriented, um, their main function of selecting grants, they're actually they don't have a scientific method to evaluate themselves in that process. Now I'm sure they're working on stuff to make the peer review more, you know, on the margins better, you know, over time. Uh, but I would think 
we should think through other options and, and seeing how they how they compare relative to peer review. Because like I said, it's it's good to be conservative with taxpayer dollars, uh, but at the same time, you know, we haven't had innovations in these certain fields for 20, 30, 40 years. So like my taxpayer dollars are helping someone in 2050, 2060, 2070, right? You know, I think a lot of people say like, no, actually I need you to help, you know, me and my family like now. Um, I need these things to happen in the next few years. So uh, trying to find uh, different options to do that uh, would be, would be valuable. Anyway, that's the kind of stuff that I think about. Yeah, no, it's super important and, and very relevant again, because, you know, we've just spent the last 30 minutes discussing the important role philanthropy, the Cohen Foundation has had to vastly accelerate these fields. And it would be amazing if, you know, some of that $40 billion that the NIH spends every year could could similarly be earmarked for super innovative uh, field advancement as, as you guys have done. Um, so hopefully some of our listeners who decide to go into research careers, you know, MD, PhDs or whatnot, may find themselves at these governmental agencies or academic labs or private foundations, take that to heart and and can collectively help change or, or reach out to you. As a last question, if our audience is interested in connecting and learning more about the Cohen Foundation or, or you, um, where should they go to, to, to learn about? Uh, website's probably easiest, www.steveandalex.com. Org. Awesome. We'll make sure to drop it in the show notes as well. So Ben, I'd really like to thank you for taking the time to be with us on the podcast, but more importantly, again, for the work that you have done over the past several decades, really across global health and now with the Cohen Foundation to accelerate work in psychedelics and, and tick-borne illnesses, among other areas. Well, hey, thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, giving us the time. Totally. And with that, I'm Shiv Gilani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise light and strengthen the healthcare system. Well, this together. Take care. like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.